Welcome back to the Starbase Indie Podcast, where we talk to and about people who are inspired by Star Trek or science fiction to work towards hopeful futures in the real world. Sitting here with Lisa Meese, it's Max Kaiserman on the Starbase Indie Podcast. So how are you? I am well. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm trying to... Uh, actually, we have a talk on Saturday at a museum, which is going to be kind of neat. So uh, looking forward to that. So tell me about your talk. Well, it's about the uh, it's about the Corvette. It's at the Simeon Museum, mm-hmm. and the Simeon Museum is world renowned as a a uh, is this gentleman, uh, Doctor Fred Simeon, was a car collector, and specifically he collected historically significant cars. So it's not just like a you know nineteen sixty four Corvette. It was the nineteen sixty four Corvette that won you know. Uh, uh, or had held the land speed record at Bonneville or something like that, like like specific race cars through history. And their thing is that all of their cars not only are are preserved in their original condition for the most part, they drive every single one of them. So they're a they're this incredible automotive museum that also runs the vehicles. They keep them in such a condition that are that that is drivable and as original as possible. So, which is incredibly rare, like Peterson and some of these other uh, museums, a lot of museums don't run any of their equipment. It just sits there on static display forever. And um, Dr. Simeon, who recently died, actually, he, he passed away last year. Um, and now the museum is a, is a public nonprofit. I mean, you can go there six days a week. Um, they've become known as like the race car collectors and the sort of historic preservation people. So when I told them that I was getting involved with the Al Warden Corvette, um, <clears throat> which one of the one of the original cars that was driven, you know, custom ordered and driven by an Apollo astronaut, there were only six mm-hmm. of these cars custom ordered, whereas the rest of them were just driven off the lot. They just, they just got whatever Corvette was available, you know. Um, so there are several other astronaut Corvettes, but there's only six that were custom made and of those six, only three still exist, and I have one of them, and it's unrestored. That's cool. Yeah. How did you How did you get it? So uh, Al Warden was Apollo fifteen astronaut uh, group astronaut group five um, uh, was was very much involved with, I would say, Apollo fans. You know, uh, he was very accessible, and his whole life's goal after being a test pilot and a fighter pilot and, a, and an astronaut and stuff like that, his life's goal was to educate people about, uh, you know, educate and inspire people about engineering and arts and math and stuff. And I mean, he, he started writing poetry and stuff like this. It, it so profoundly changed him to go to the moon. Um, and he held the Guinness world record still to this day of most isolated human being ever. He, uh, he was the guy that stayed up in the command module on Apollo 15. The other two guys, uh, Dave Scott and Jim Irwin landed on the moon and he stayed up in right there. That's his command module. Actually. Mm-hmm. Um, he stayed up in the command module and the apogee of the orbit had him at, I think it was something like 3000 or 5,000 nautical miles from the next human being, which is impossible on the planet earth. And, sure. has, and has never been done, um, uh, you know, since then. I mean, the, the just the way they had he had gone out a little bit farther. It was the first. It was the first scientific ma- uh, scientific Apollo mission. It was called a J mission. Apollo fifteen was the first scientific, really purely scientific Apollo mission. 
and uh, <clears throat> he was photographing the lunar surface from the command module. So they had, I guess he had, he had increased the apogee of his, of his orbit so that he could do that. And in doing so became the most isolated human being ever. <laughs> so in any case, so Al was a good friend. Um, he, he had this uh, Corvette for a year and gave it back to general motors. They kind of like rented them for a year and um, he never saw it again. And around 2017, a Corvette collector found found it and uh, never restored it. He kind of didn't touch. He was getting older and decided, and he had collected several other astronaut Corvettes. Um, he decided that uh, he was going to leave it as is, and it would kind of be the next person's problem or or leave it as is. You know, like maybe that's that's the proper way to preserve that is keep it exactly the way it was found. But it had sit out, it sat outside for a number of years. Um, so it's a little bit in rough shape. And... Um, in partnering with Al Warden during his life, uh, I became friendly with his family and he died uh, kind of suddenly at the beginning of COVID and um, actually at his funeral, which was two years later, we couldn't actually have his funeral for a couple of years. I sat down with his grandson and his grandson had been in touch with this collector that had found the car. And he said, kind of, you know, if, if you and I want to go in this together, like, let's do this for, for Al. And, and we did. Um, Purchased the car uh, and brought it back to Philadelphia, where I am. And there's a very good ecosystem and and support system for historic restoration and stuff around here. Uh, and I'm here, and um, the Simeon Museum is here. <laughs> and um, on Saturday, we're giving a talk on restoration versus preservation. And I'll give a little a little plug here. Fred Simeon literally wrote the book on on historic preservation it's, he wrote oh, a book neat. called the stewardship the stewardship of historically important automobiles with a ton of of contributors to this uh, Co- uh, uh, miles collier and several other folks that um i'm actually speaking with one of them uh uh, uh leslie nero who's going to be at our at our chat on saturday um who's like he does stuff with the antiques Roadshow, and uh, it's it's really quite incredible the the crew that's involved in this project um that that uh you know started with a after funeral conversation hey why don't we why don't we see if we can get this car from the collector and bring it back into the warden family and you know and and me by extension and then see what we can do with that and bring it to the world. And the goal is really to, to bring it to the world. And also the process of doing the restoration or doing the uh, preservation work, all of those are different trades. And all of those are, are craftsmen and, and craftspeople. Um, and we want to highlight that too. I want to see what, what, what we can talk about and, and show visually uh, um, the, the restoration and preservation process so that that in itself is an educatable moment. So talk a little bit about the difference between restoration and preservation and the arguments for each. Yeah, so that's a great question. And this is what the whole event is going to be about on Saturday, mm-hmm. uh, or at least a portion of the event. Uh, part of the event is actually going to be about Fred's collection and his his method of preservation. And his, his was really kind of a purist, um, which I would say is one end of the spectrum. And that is, I found it like this. And that's the way it's going to stay. It's a time capsule uh, of that period. Um, 
with a little bit of a caveat that, you know, cars, especially cars, have these consumable things. There's there's rubber parts on them. There's seals and, and gaskets and stuff. And all of those things, they're not unique. There are thousands of them. Or they can be easily recreated or reproduced. Um, whereas maybe... Entropy an, is a thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and, and even without planned obsolescence, a rubber part's going to go. You know, it's going to happen. Right, so, yeah. so you can replace stuff like that. You can mechanically bring it back to the correct condition. Uh, and in doing so, actually, that that preserves it. I mean, seals are there for reasons to keep out water and stuff, which can cause rust mm -hmm. and everything keeps the oil in. Um, so from a preservation standpoint, replacing certain parts and getting it running again is uh, even to the preservationist, the, the purest preser preservationist that is in itself a. Um, uh, an okay practice is academically an okay practice. There would be even a step farther to say, Hey, the oil that's in the crankcase of this time capsule, that oil is historic itself. You know, maybe it's whale blubber oil or something like that. And you know, that's, that's if you really go far, you know, that's like, don't uncork the bottle kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, however, that being said, once it's mechanically correct, the body and the paint and the uh, interior and stuff like that, as long as it's not falling apart, you can preserve it in its current condition. And that is the original paint. That is the original brush strokes of the artist, you know, that painted that car or built that car. Um, very similar to like a, uh, like a, uh, you know, restoring a Renaissance painting. And where you do need to fill in things, like for instance, if you do need to fill in places where paint has fallen off to, prevent the rust, you know, from starting or something like that, you know, you, you, you're trying to, you still, um, containing what, uh, uh, you know, preventing, how do I say this encapsulating or something, you know, trying to, mm -hmm. trying to actually restore it a little bit so that it, it, it freezes, uh, whatever deterioration has happened, um, doing so in reversible techniques, you know, so using paints that can be removed without damaging the original paint, you know, using a water base on top of a, uh, or, or, um, was it a chalk paint or something? I forget what it is, but there's a way to match it, um, without harming the old paint. So leaving no trace kind of thing or, or being able, you know, reversibility, um, same thing again, same thing in, in art restoration. So that's, uh, that's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is full restoration. And that is, you know, let's bring it back to the way it was intended to be seen the day it was made or the day that, you know, whatever, like the, this is the important piece of the history of, uh, or the important time, time scale of this history that this piece is known for. Uh, for instance, the Smithsonian will occasionally, they'll get like a P-51 Mustang uh, airplane that was used in World War II and was some, you know, fighter aces plane. But, you know, it got shuffled through the system later on and became a training aircraft and they put a second seat in it or, or you know, change the paint scheme and stuff like that. Well, where do you res do you restore it? Do you preserve it in its last configuration as that as that um, as that training aircraft? Or do you bring it back to a moment in time where it's sort of more renowned before it got forgotten about and shuffled into the, uh, you know, into the surplus office, you know? Um, and there's debates on that. Do you bring it back? Do you recreate any portion of that? Do you repaint it the way it would have been? Or do you just peel back the layers and find the original paint? Um, so I think, um, where we are is somewhere in between, 
you know, there's nothing particularly unique about this car other than who owned it, other than who owned it. And then the paint scheme, it is a standard 1971 Corvette uh, of that, you know, of that model Corvette, the LS five, which was a big block Corvette T top, you know, 454 engine, stuff like that. Um, uh, in classic white, which was the, which was the factory color. That's the color that it is. And they put these three stripes across, or, well, two stripes. The center stripe is white. So it was just the, 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 the base coat. Um, but other than that, it's a, you know, it's off the line Corvette. Um, and a lot of things are like that. I mean, there's, there are, there are standard airplanes. There are, um, you, you know, um, I don't know, you name it, you know, someone famous as car, you know, other than some tinkering or something, it's a standard car, you know, uh, or a Jeep or something, but Hey, it's Patton's Jeep, you know, <laughs> like, like mm-hmm. that's the, the, who owned it as part of the provenance and the interesting. So what do you do? You know, um, can we, we can, we can mechanically restore it to a position where it's drivable and safe and, uh, able to be seen by the public, uh, without having to, you know, pick it up and crane it, put it places, you know, the safety kind of aspect. Mm-hmm. Um, but do you leave the original paint? Do you, do you, do you show it warts and all the way, uh, you know, uh, the sun and the, the wind has, has, has touched it over the years and stuff like that. And that's, that's what we're really talking about. So how have you made those decisions for Astrovet Endeavor and, and what's your philosophy around that? We haven't made the decision yet. Ah, <laughs> we're, okay. we're in the middle of it. And actually we're kind of crowdsourcing it a bit. We're, we're, mm-hmm. we've put it out there and the Simeon museum has put it out there and they've gotten 200 responses and overwhelmingly they are, they're saying preserve it. Um, there are some people that know a little bit more about the car and know that there's some, you know, there was damage at one point. So, so something was fixed and, and when it was fixed, it wasn't always fixed exactly, you know, perfectly. And so there might be a mix between preservation and restoration, you know, the sort of a happy medium where you fix old repairs that were wrong and, and, you know, kind of, kind of bring it up to a certain level, uh, as if, as if it had happened recently. Um, that's where it gets, it gets kind of muddy also because that, that repair is now part of history. You know, it happened 40 years ago. At what point is the cutoff? Um, you know, there's, uh, I'm involved with, uh, ship museums, you know, historic ship museums, um, U S Navy warships. Um, and, uh, a prime example of that is the, is like the USS New Jersey, which was an Iowa class battleship. And they used her, built her in world war two used in Korea, Vietnam, and in the Gulf war, you know, was reactivated in the nineties. She's got to take, so the ship built in 1943, 44 was used all the way up to the 1990s. Well, in the nineties, you know, they put computers aboard and Tomahawk missiles and they, they cut a bunch of the guns and stuff off and made it a, a helicopter pad, all of that stuff. So when it becomes a museum, what do you do? Do you bring it back to the, to, to what she was like constructed in world war two with, you know, or do you, do you leave parts of it that were from 91? That's historical too. You know, the, those, those Tomahawk missile boxes though, that's from 1991, you know, that's now 30 some years ago. Um, and, and a piece of history in its own right. So where do you, where do you restore the ship to? It's the same. I think, I think we're getting there kind of, where do you restore the Astrovet to? Uh, is it, is it 1980 when the accident happened or is it 1971 when it rolled off the line and it was, and it was Al Warden's car, you know, um, I'm still trying to decide that. 
that sounds like an interesting conundrum because it's not a, there's not really a right or a wrong answer there. That's right. Yeah, no, it's all academic. I mean, it's all mm-hmm. it's it's really you you have five people in a room, you'll get five different answers kind of thing. Um and during our presentation on Saturday, we are we're you know, the guest speakers are myself, uh who's kind of a neutral, a little bit of a neutral party. Uh, and uh and the user, you know, I our goal is to bring this to as many people and to be able to drive it. Um, but I also understand the academic side of the historical component of it. Uh, and then Kevin McKay, who is the world renowned Corvette restoration guy, you know, he's the one that has, has found these, these historic racing Corvettes and, and one-off Corvettes that are worth millions of dollars and stuff. Um, and he brings them back to a certain level, uh, that, that, you know, um, there's in fact, there's an entire national organization called the national Corvette restoration society that has rules for this kind of thing. They publish these, I don't have it here, but they publish this manual ever for every year of, of Corvette. And it says, you know, the, the, the date code on the seatbelt needs to, to match within, you know, these months, if, if your car rolled off the line in February, you know, the, the, the tires, uh, they give you they there's a couple of leniencies, you know, the tires that you don't have to use actual 50 year old tires because that would be very dangerous, you know, or entropy again, <laughs> again. Yeah, right. No, you don't actually have to find gas from the 1970s, you know, to put in the car. Obviously, Please don't. Things, yeah, right. <laughs> um, you know, but where do you draw the line and where do you uh, where do you make compromises um, and what what can you do that that really says um you are a steward and not someone that's that's making their own tool marks uh, in, in this in this piece, uh, and that's where we see ourselves. Will Will Warden and myself both see ourselves as waypoints in the future of this of this vehicle, and and certainly to to bring it to the next generation, but not to alter it in a permanent way. Uh, you know, we're not gonna we're not going to put gas bags on it and jumping around and stuff like that. Like we're not, obviously that's uh, that's not on the, uh, on the agenda. I missed my whole introduction. Do you want me to go back and, and um, cut this? I, I was going to just do it at the end and I'll start, uh, but we can do it now. So yeah, why don't we uh, start by having you introduce yourself? Sure. Lisa, it's so nice to be on the show. Thank you again for having me. Um, I'm Max. I am the um, director owner of lunar replicas which is a space reproduction and uh, inspiration company. We, we try and make uh, a reproduction space hardware and, and clothing and apparel, stuff like flights, jackets, flight suits, flashlights, watches, you know, um, stuff that um, we sell both original pieces, uh, you know, pieces from spacecrafts and stuff like that, as well as reproductions of, you know, a, a tether hook or a flashlight or the or the pen or something of the sunglasses that were worn by Apollo astronauts, Mercury, Gemini, Apollo. Um, and the 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 goal of ours is to be as authentic and original as possible. So using the original suppliers of some of these things, such as Omega made the made the watches, we get watches from Omega. Uh, American Optical made the sunglasses. We get sunglasses spec exactly the way NASA had them made for for uh, you know astronauts in the in the 60s and 70s. Um, and that's what you can get on our website, lunareplicas.com. Um, and the uh, the secret is that I'm not actually in apparel business or a gear business. Uh, I'm a historian trying to teach you some history 
and 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 inspire you to to go out and do this for yourself. And if that means um, pretending to look cool or or you know faking it till you make it kind of thing, that's really that's really the goal. Is if you can make Apollo part of your everyday life, and you go out and become an astronaut, or you go out and become an engineer, or a teacher, or a whatever, a, a mechanic, um, then I, then then my goal is completely uh completely satisfied there how did you get into this oh boy you got a couple hours <laughs> about a couple hours but you know we got some time i um i was always interested in history and uh to be perfectly blunt i was always into playing dress up and i always thought it brought you closer to the history or in my case i was a huge star trek fan um and and you know what they now call cosplay you know i i I called dressing up like uh, Captain Kirk or Commander Riker or mm-hmm. something on a regular basis. Um, and I was always, I, I had always an eye for authenticity. You know, like the, the Ruby's costumes were out and I just said, nah, it's not. Even as a kid, even, you know, I'm five, six years old. I was like, that's not particularly accurate <laughs> with the silk screen com badge and stuff like that. I I always had an eye for authenticity. And, I, and um as I got deeper into my love of history uh, and my own family history, my family, my uh, grandfather was a, a tanker in world war two and uh, landed on Omaha beach in Normandy, actually on uh, June 6th. Um, I got fascinated with world war two history and around the same time, you know, band of brothers and, and saving private Ryan, all these huge, amazingly accurate uh, and, and deep movies and TV shows came out. Uh, really re-sparked the whole World War II reenactor field. So I got into reenacting because of that. And there's some reenactors that are really, really deep into like every stitch has to be perfect on their uniform. If it's a reproduction uniform, you know. Um, so I did that for a little while. And um, I'd always been a huge fan of Apollo 13 and, and you know, uh, October Sky and all these like 1960s era, 50s, 60s, early space history. And I said kind of, how come nobody does reproductions of flight jackets and, and Apollo gear and stuff like the same with the same fidelity as these world war two reproductions. And I went and spoke to a couple of people that do these world war two reproductions. And they said, yeah, well, look, we can do it, but you know, we need to find original pieces to copy it off of. And we need someone with some money to do it. And to do one is going to cost the same as it would to do, you know, 20. So, <laughs> you know, you might as well do a run of them, you know, Right, right. And so I did that. I, I kind of scoured. I asked around. So I there were some people that owned original flight jackets and and uh, you know other clothing and stuff. And uh, we made it. You know, I I partnered with a guy in California. We decided to do everything in the U.S. or as much as we could in the U.S. Made them, you know, exactly the same way as the originals were. I even reached out to the family that owned the company that that made the jackets originally the land family and, uh, and asked them a bunch of questions and their process and stuff. And, um, you know, put out the, the most accurate original, you know, to the original NASA flight jackets. And actually there were like four or five different variations. We make all of them. <laughs> so, uh, it has spiraled out of control as you can see. Uh, and we now, <laughs> we're sort of the providers of, uh, and, and frankly, one of the keepers of the torch. I mean, because of this, I have, I have been introduced to every living Apollo astronaut. Um, most of the living Apollo flight directors and controllers, um, a lot of the engineers and, and artists and other folks that were involved with the program. Um, and our goal, I mean, they, they can see that the goal is really not just to make cool stuff. It's to make cool stuff so that this stuff stays alive. 
Um, and that's, that's exactly what living history does. That's exactly what museums do. And this is what you can kind of do at home. You can wear a museum piece at home or make it part of your everyday life. So you mentioned being a Star Trek fan. How did you get into that? Uh, I, a cousin of mine. So I'm, I'm a millennial. Um, I was born in 1988, just a few months after next generation started. And my older cousin, uh, was, had been a Star Trek fan and he's about 10 years older than me. So when, when your next generation came out, it was a big deal to him. And, uh, we would, you know, have family dinners together and stuff and then scurry off and watch next generation. And I remember the very first episode that I watched live was remember me, which was, um, the Gates McFadden episode, uh, uh, where she, she, she thinks she's going crazy and people are disappearing off the enterprise. Uh, and, and, um, it turns out that here, spoiler alert, it's only 30 years later. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a artificial warp bubble that's collapsing and, you know, which is in tune, uh, um, reducing the size of the universe within, you know, this thing that, 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 uh, that Dr. Crusher is inside something that, that Wesley Crusher had created. Um, Anyway, I was, I was, I was completely blown away. I thought that was, I, I thought that the whole concept of that and then the reveal at the end and stuff was so interesting. And I'm, I was like six years old or so, you know, whatever. Um, mm-hmm. I think it was in the sixth season. Um, and I learned everything I could about it. And then I, I love that there was the history that, you know, that this is this is the third enterprise. And there were other there were other enterprise. I knew nothing of the original series, you know. And I went back and watched the movies, and then I watched the original series, and then I, you know, finished Next Generation. And when DS9 came on, I followed that from the beginning, practically. Um, and you know, I just grew up with it. It was just this thing. And in doing so. Because I was interested in the the science and, and history of, of Star Trek itself, um, I got really into the production of it. Like I, I loved mm-hmm. watching that when the DVDs and stuff came out or when there were some VHSs of behind the scenes stuff. I watched a lot of the um, you know, the making of and I, I read uh, William Shatner's book, The The Making of Star Trek. Um, or I'm sorry, Star Trek Memories. Uh and then he did Star Trek movie memories or something. I really got into the background of this stuff and how it was made and who wrote it. And you know, the, the magic of Star Trek itself, but then the ethos, the ethos and magic of Star Trek. And then of course the, the, the people that made it happen. And because of that, I got really into film production. Uh, and then I, I started working in the movie industry. Actually, that was my career path through high school and into uh, college. And then after college, I, I worked at, uh, uh, various production companies and stuff. And I, um, uh, actually in high school, I helped with the, uh, phase two, a uh, Star Trek phase two, which was a fan series based around the, the original series with James Cauley and, and upstate New York. And I wasn't far away. So I would travel up there and help them with that. And that was very connected to actual people working on the show. And through that, I kind of became friends with some of them and, um, they introduced me to Hollywood and, and, and folks there and stuff there. So they were very, um, they were very instrumental in my own little career. So Star Trek, it's, it's, it's a common story too. There's a lot of people that work on Star Trek that were Star Trek fans and said, I'm going to weasel my way into working on Star Trek one day. <laughs> you know. And by the time I was working in film, there really wasn't a Star Trek series on. It was, uh, it was, it was the J.J. Abrams movies. And I knew some people that worked on the films, but um, I really wanted to work on you know prime Star Trek and it didn't exist at the time. 
uh, eventually I left the film industry and, um, you know, a couple years later I started, uh, lunar replicas. So I've, I've kind of done some things with film because of lunar replicas, you know, they, they make a lot of Apollo and, you know, Mercury Gemini movies and stuff. Um, but, uh, but, uh, I've kept in touch with some of the Star Trek people as well. They're, they're all wonderful, wonderful people. And they've all, uh, a lot of the next generation folks are working on the new, uh, Picard season three, which has been phenomenal. I mean, it's just been, Oh yeah. The, the rebirth, it, it is this, the, the eighth season of, uh, of the next generation. I mean, like that's, and tomorrow night, Oh, I don't know when your podcast is coming out. Oh yeah. But. Well, yeah, it, it will, it won't be out right this soon, but yes, I'm, I am waiting for the last episode. I couldn't get a ticket as well. I wanted to go to the IMAX oh. theater and get a ticket. It was impossible. So I'll watch. Yeah. It they're TV. not even bringing that to Indianapolis. But <laughs> I will be watching it tomorrow. <laughs> well, you know, it it goes live. I think it goes live at midnight. So you have to work tomorrow. I can't stay up. I might. Late, I but. might have to stay up for this one. Oh my god! I so. Um, it has, just, but you're right. It's been absolutely a love letter, not only to the fans, but one of the things I've loved about it is watching it be a love letter to the people working yes. on it. You know, the, the Akutas yep. and Doug Drexlers and you know the folks who have come back home for it, right? Uh, hey, Terry Madales, who who started mm -hmm, yeah. as a script guy, I think he was like a script runner or something. Like he was, he was a kid on Enterprise. You know, he was a kid on on old Prime Trek twenty years ago. Has made this absolutely the love letter to it. And I love that they brought back, um, you know, elements of Voyager and elements of, of enterprise. And, you know, um, though they're not in it uh, necessarily other than uh, obviously uh, Jerry Ryan and uh, Tim mm -hmm. Ross and stuff who had made appearances. Um, I'm really hoping for Janeway to make an appearance, by the way. <laughs> I'm <laughs> I crossing my fingers on that. Absolutely. I think I'm it's interesting, by the way, bringing back Admiral Shelby or, you know, Commander Shelby, yeah. What a deep cut, man. Like that's, that was. And uh, Rolaren too, right? Uh, oh, Same thing. Oh, what a great ending to that story too. Cause you, yeah. you know, I had thought she was killed, uh, you know, in DS nine where the, the Cardassians had, uh, by the way, this is really interesting that we've, I completely forgot for a moment. This was a Star Trek podcast. <laughs> and we're, I'm going off on, you know, restoration preservation techniques of antique, you know, historic aircraft and cars and, and, ships and stuff and now we just slide right into star trek which by the way a number of nasa people that i know we could have the exact same conversation they started by watching star trek and yep. then engineer on the hubble space telescope uh you name it doctor on you know that's developing um what's it the eye surgery or uh, uh the the pressure is the the effects of zero g on your eyes like i mean like and astronauts astronauts who are star trek fans i mean it's just really there is a direct line sally ride uh wore i think she had a, a com badge with her on on uh one of her missions or something like that like there's there is and, and Mae Jemison much. who went the other direction right and was an astronaut and then became an actor on Star Trek right yes so there's a lot of, of yeah there's a the lot most of overqualified transporter chief <laughs> right right um, um you know and it's interesting because the connection we're really a Star Trek convention and our mission is really similar to the mission you've got for Astrovet Endeavor which is in uh inspiring interest yep. Yep. in science and technology we say uh celebrating the the future that star trek 
envisions because it's a hopeful future. And Absolutely. I would like one of those, please. <laughs> I, uh, oh, especially now. I mean, like you see yeah. a regression in, in uh, politics and, and cultural culture war wars and stuff like that um, in, in there can be a lot of hopelessness um, yeah. and uh, some of it's manufactured. Some of it is on purpose. It's, you know, uh, the world's hopeless. So pay me, you know, like, and, and, right, right. and that's been going on forever. I mean, like you, you'll see that in the Roman period, they were saying, you know, well, the world's coming to an end, but so buy all my crap, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And then some of it is uh, obviously, you know, it's real. I mean, there are there are real injustices that are happening, and to look to a a time period or a hopeful hope for the future that says basically that even is very honest about it's going to get worse before it gets better, and but when it gets better, it's going to be great. You know, it's really going to be um, we're going to figure stuff out. There is no longer going to be scarcity. There there is no longer going to be. Uh, as Jonathan Frake says, you know. Um, uh, there's no hunger, there's no greed and all the little kids know how to read. That was really, I mean, that's what we want to get to. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. what happens when you remove, this is Star Trek on earth. Anyway, what happens when you remove, um, the basic needs that all the basic needs are met? You have water, you have food in endless supply. It gets to the right people because there's nobody hoarding it for themselves. It gets to everyone. Um, and everyone's basically enlightened. They know how to read. They, you know, the, the, um, education becomes a primary goal of everyone on earth. Uh, and that's the magic bullet. You know, those are the three on the three legs. Now, now what do you do with yourself? What do you do now that you don't have to fight to, to eat, drink, or, uh, uh, you know, understand the world, um, and Star Trek and, is, is, is the result Star, of that, you know. And Star Trek says when we get to that point, we're going to go, you know, build spaceships and go explore the universe. Right. And, uh, and by yeah, the way, and, they, they even address this in Enterprise a little bit. They address this. What if you don't want to do that? You know, mm-hmm. what if you don't want to go to the stars? Fine. You can be on Earth and you can you can find enlightenment. You can you can self enrich yourself. You can uh, do things. You can sail the, the world and stuff like that. Like there are there is still purpose um uh there is there is hope for you it's not just living in a utopia it's interesting star trek plays a lot with the the utopia concept mm-hmm. in that you go to a world that is perfect or is you know oversexed or whatever um and just below the surface nobody's happy <laughs> you know they mm-hmm. they're very stereotypically or 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 very superficially rather they're very superficially happy and whatever but they're being taken advantage of somehow Star Trek is utopia with your eyes open, you know, uh, the world or earth is, or the Federation or something is, you know, utopia with your eyes open. There's still differences. There's still, um, uniqueness, um, and a drive to do something, but nobody's hurting. There's nobody huddled in a corner that is, uh, that is wanting anything. And, um, that's an incredibly powerful, uh, um, hope for the future. And it's interesting that you started sort of with this um, connection to that vision of a hopeful future, and then you went into history from there. How do those connect for you? Um, history, well, uh, Captain P- Admiral Picard is a, is a student of history. I, mm-hmm. I got I to honestly, 
um, it's going to sound so corny, but it's a Star Trek podcast, so I don't care. You're, you're all my people. You know? <laughs> um, I was a huge fan of the Bajoran. Uh, I'm, I'm Deep Space Nine is by far my favorite series. I think it was wonderfully written. Ira Stephen Bear and Michael Pillar and stuff made that show absolutely incredible. I, I love. I actually here. Um, this is an exact copy of Captain Cisco's. Um, <laughs> the I, baseball. I keep this on my desk everywhere I go. Yep. And as a matter of fact, yep, yep. here is uh, that's that's the. Uh, I see the bottom of the horgon. The, yeah, there's a horgon up there, and then also the. <laughs> The baseball card um, that, oh, okay. that Jake had yeah, to yeah. get for. Anyway, um, the archaeological aspect and some of the historical things that they went into about Bajoran culture, I kid mm-hmm. you not, got me interested in history of of the world. Uh, and and you know if they can if they can create this. And again, this is why I got into writing and why I got into uh, uh, filmmaking and production design and stuff like that was if you can out of thin air create a rich culture like the Bajorans and the conflict between the Bajorans and the Cardassians and stuff. And it's not really out of thin air. It comes from actual history and they and they reuse, you know, tropes that have happened through human history and, and Shakespeare and stuff like that. Um, uh, I got very interested in in world history. And I was very interested in European history as well as uh, uh, Egyptian and Greek and, you know, um, American history. And it, it, it kind of came out. It really it legitimately came out of um, fictional ancient history turned into <laughs> real world history. You know, this is one of the things that I love about talking to people with a connection to Star Trek. Um, we have a lot of. Klingon language folks that show up at our event and that we've gotten connected to. And I love the way that looking at that culture and, and has inspired people to understand more about language and more about, you know, ourselves. Right. Yeah. And it sounds like that's that same connection. And I love that not only has Star Trek inspired people to go to the moon and to the stars, but also to look backwards or to look inwards. And, And I think that's one of the, the magical pieces of it. What is it, do you think, about Star Trek that creates that magic? Uh, literature. I mean, it's it is it is the incredible uh, collaboration of writers and and the heart of these writers, and to some extent, you know, the producers and stuff. And some of them were producer writers and stuff uh, mm-hmm. of Star Trek. That uh, I, I mean, Gene Roddenberry, and this guy was a very flawed person. You know, but for his time was was quite enlightened. Um, and he said, you know, what can we do uh, knowing the past? I mean, he's a World War Two veteran. He was a police officer. He was a, 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 a student of of philosophy and, and other things. I mean, it's the same thing with like um, Rod Serling. Um, and you look to people haven't changed. You know, people really haven't changed. And I think that I think that um, put in certain circumstances based on your own history and based on your cultural history, your reactions will be, you know, are pretty much predetermined in a lot of ways. And destiny and stuff has a lot to do with certain aspects of Star Trek. Some aspects of Star Trek are about breaking destiny. It's, you know, what do you do if you're this? Cardassian that that uh, of course Star Trek places it on another world but it's of course we're all talking about being people 
um, and what do you do in certain circumstances? You're learning that from history and you're learning that from observable things and, and, and written down things, how people have reacted. Um, and literature is, you know, to beyond, beyond written history, there is literature. I mean, it, it, it is because of literature and arts and, and engineering and stuff that we even know anything about the Egyptians or anything about ancient Greece. I mean, Homer, uh, you know, wrote about ancient Greece and, and, you know, the Egyptians, the Egyptian culture spanned 3000 years, you know, I, I, that's mind boggling. You know, we we're American. We've only been around for, you know, 260 years or something like even, even the British have only been, the British empire has only been around for what, 400 years and, and a thousand years of England, 3000 years 5,000 years ago, you know, or more 10,000 years ago was, was Egypt. Um, and learning from that, uh, history and the, all that was written down in the art that was saved from that, uh, tells you how people react to things. What do you do? How do you cope with the death of a child? You know, what do you do when you, uh, and, and even this is religion. I mean, recorded religion is, is, uh, is, is kind of like a handbook. If you don't believe in, in the, whether or not you believe in the, the, uh, existence of God and stuff like that. Um, religion acts as a handbook of how to be a good person. Theoretically. Um, it can be of course twisted in different ways and things, but, but as a handbook or as a piece of literature that has survived relatively unchanged for thousands of years, you're learning how to, how to, how to be a human and how to, how somebody lived, you know, their, their crops died or whatever. And, uh, how do you treat that person? Um, that's all literature. And Star Trek is a form of that literature. It's a continuation of that, um, placing people in circumstances that are hard. And what do you do in that case? That is an excellent answer. It's a really uh, long answer. You want me to cut that down a little bit? No, no, not not at all. Not at all. Um, you've also done some work with NASA, I understand. What have you done with NASA? Uh, really what I have done with NASA is... Um, uh, through the flight directors and flight controllers, uh, the, 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 um, historic ones at Apollo, um, we've mm -hmm. done some preservation work with the, um, uh, there's a couple of things I actually can't talk about. Um, but that's fair, <laughs> but it, just cause they haven't been released yet. Um, but, but it's, uh, basically, educational materials for some of the older systems and stuff, um, mm -hmm. which are available on our website, actually the, uh, like a command module poster, um, all the switches, the switch banks and stuff like that on the, on the main panel of the command module. Um, that is incredibly complex. There's over a thousand switches and it's not something that, you know, you, you can esoterically talk about the Apollo program, but to dive deeper into how the computer systems and the interface and stuff worked is actually quite interesting. Um, it's all mechanical, uh, relatively mechanical. There, there was a computer system, but it was, it was a, what you would call a mechanical computer to some degree. There were, uh, there, you know, it did have memory and stuff like that. Um, but it also, were they still using the LOL code with that? <laughs> Is that a thing? Well, I don't know who LOL. Oh, it, oh, it is. Oh, yeah. Some of the early coding was uh, an LOL for little old ladies because it was yes, uh, yes, one hundred percent. It was yeah. knitting. Yeah, it was the the rope core memory, which yes, was that, which was yes. uh, they were you know they were sewing together wire, um, mm -hmm. 
and that's incredible. I mean, like that in itself, the, the program is the deeper you go into these things, the more amazing it gets. It's one of these where you yeah. peel, peel back the onion and, and zoom in and it gets more and more interesting. Um, and it's very niche right now. That's very, you have to know somebody that, uh, that, that is into that or has, has recreated a simulator of some sort of the Apollo guidance computer, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, there, and, and we're in an era now where that's a lot more accessible because of obviously because of the internet, because of, um, phones and, and tablets and stuff where you can, you can recreate a lot of these things and the, and the programming behind it is accurate. Um, so this is a way, what we have done is create a way of placing yourself in front of a, in front of a command module or a, uh, Gemini capsule or a Mercury capsule and more to come, <laughs> um, uh, without, without having to go into a simulator or something like that. And, and they are incredibly authentically accurate. How cool. Well, we'll have to have you back when some of this other stuff is released. So you can yeah. talk more about that. Uh, so uh, by the way, I preface that with, it's not technically for NASA, but it has been used by NASA and in use in some of the schools, uh, like universities and stuff that, that teach a lot of this stuff they're hanging in those schools and it's part of their curriculum. Um, and that's through the very, very, generous help of uh, Apollo Apollo flight director and later uh, was the was the head of Johnson Space Flight Center uh, Jerry Griffin okay very cool so what aside from things you can't talk about what are you working on next uh, next is expanding what we offer um, for uh, Apollo gear uh, we're always we always have one or two things that are in the works for Apollo gear. Um, you'll be the first to hear this and your, your followers will be the first to hear this. I am working, uh, it's, it's been a surprisingly difficult project, but I'm trying to recreate the original American flag set that was taken from Apollo 11 to Apollo 17. Uh, what the actual flag that they planted on, Mm -hmm. on the moon, um, was, you know, everything's an engineering problem on the moon and obviously the, the, uh, in such a harsh environment and then wearing these mobile spacesuits that have very little mob, you know, relatively little mobility. Um, uh, but still incredible for its time period and everything. And still today, uh, being able to plant a flag on, on, on the moon, which is of course symbolic and stuff like that. But I, the, the engineering component of it and the, the actual making that happen, we're trying to recreate that. Um, and it is, uh, there's very little information about it. It was, it was very much a last minute project, actually a month it was about a month before they went up. So July, uh, they, they launched in July of, uh, 1969. So around June or late May or so they said, Hey, wouldn't it be interesting if we put a flag up there? <laughs> <You know? laughs> sort of. Yeah. I can see where that would be kind of a last minute thing. It's not the first thing you work on when you head for the moon right no and it's on everything i mean they have patches they have bags they have it's on mm-hmm. the side of the, the the lunar module and everything but um uh yeah so a non-trivial uh uh endeavor and trying to make that happen um so people can have it for the public that's neat so lunar replicas is one place people can find you online where else can people find you 
We are, if you go to projectastrovet.com, it'll take you mm-hmm. right to uh, the uh, AstroVet um, updates and things that we're doing. It's a very basic web page, but you can keep up with us there. We're on YouTube at Lunar Replicas, as well as on Instagram and Facebook. And uh, yeah, follow along. I, I try and do a podcast. Uh, I haven't been doing them as much lately. <laughs> live live streams uh, on Facebook. Um, just been going a mile a minute, so I haven't had a chance to, but I used to do several of them uh, a month. And um, also, as this restoration project continues, there will be content related to what, you know, what we're doing with the AstroVet car, uh, as well as, you know, future projects and stuff that are coming up. Uh, another thing that we've been doing is uh, I, I partnered with Ford Motor Company and Carol Shelby Licensing, which is you know, the original Cobra teams and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, to bring out and do very much similar thing that we're doing with NASA do with um, vintage American racing, you know, so, so like the movie Ford versus Ferrari, for instance, like that, right, era, right. that era of racing and that, that can do spirit, which is very similar to the NASA spirit. And it's around the same time period. Um, similar treatment to that, you, you know, the original racing gear and uh, suits and, and team shirts and, helmets and gloves and all the other things, you know, that was, that was cool. But we're doing that under license with Ford Motor Company and with Carol Shelby. That's really cool. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk to me. Oh, totally. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Starbase Indie Podcast. To find more information about our live event this November, check us out at starbaseindie.org or on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. See you on the Starbase.